You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Adam Webb. Uh, My wife Megan and I are part of the Aurora Community Group. Um, So this morning I'm going to be reading the scripture. It's from Ruth 1, uh, 6 through 18. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband that this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Would you therefore wait till they were grown? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. All right, thank you, my brother from Laos. Hey, good morning. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. It's good to be with you. Thank you for spending your three-day weekend uh, in town and with us. Um, If you're a guest, there's a Connect card under your chair. Take a minute, fill that out, let us know how we can serve you, let us know how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you are using your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. If you'd like a hard uh, copy, hardback Bible, you can raise your hand and Scotty will bring you one. We have some out there on the uh, resource table and he'd be happy to bring you one. So we're going to pick it back up in our walk through Ruth. Uh, Before we get going, I meant to say this last week and I forgot... um, For this series, I've leaned pretty heavily on two pastoral heroes of mine, uh, John Piper and Tony Merida. And in Merida's book on Ruth, he said he leaned pretty heavily on uh, Ian Duguid and Daniel Block. And so just by extension, I've leaned heavily on on those two men as well. So I'm most certainly going to try to give credit where credit is due if I'm specifically quoting them directly. But for this series, we are certainly indebted to these four men and their faithful work to help us exegete this text properly. Um, So before we jump in, I want to remind you all of some some contextual things. The first part, Ruth Ruth 1.1, the first part of the verse, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. 
so this context, the context of the book of Ruth, is written within the time frame of the book of Judges, which in our English Bibles comes right before the book of Ruth. It's 21 chapters of just one giant mess. And as days go by, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse as the book progresses. The book of Judges can be summed up like this. Judges 21, 25, the last verse in the book says this. In those days, uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges gives us a highlight of a nation, the nation of Israel, at a national political level and then kind of a local level. And the book of Ruth is a zoom in on, on one particular family during this time. So it, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but there's in the book of Judges what's known as the cycle of Judges. The nation of Israel wanders away from God. They sin. They remain in sin. They don't repent from sin. They're wandering away from God. So God, therefore, would then send judgment upon the nation through an oppressor, a foreign oppressor. And it was also often accompanied by signs like a severe famine, for example, and other uh, pestilences, as promised in the book of Deuteronomy. God said there's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience, oftentimes a famine, for example. So God would send these foreign oppressors and the people of Israel would get tired of being oppressed so they would repent, they would turn away from their sins, they would turn away from their unbelief and they would turn back to God and God would then relent by raising up a judge or a, a rescuer to come in and run off the oppressor or execute the oppressor. And then Israel would be restored to her former glory and would experience the blessings of God again. And then the judge would die and the whole cycle would start all over again. And this went on for 400 years of history in the nation of Israel. And as the cycle progressed, the judges continued to get worse and worse, more and more corrupt, and less and less holy. And so in Ruth 1, we're introduced to this man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. Elimelech moves his family out of Israel, out of the promised land, to Moab, a foreign nation, a nation that's actually constantly at war with Israel. So Elimelech moves his family from Israel to Moab, to an enemy nation in the midst of a famine. This move was away from God. This move was made in disobedience to God. And they get to Moab, and the sons and the husband die. Elimelech dies, their two sons die. And their two sons prior to dying actually marry pagan women idol-worshiping women, and then they all die, leaving these three women, Naomi and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, without, without men to provide for them. Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-laws are in a crisis situation. They're in a foreign place without men to provide for them, and because of this, their future is hopeless. So last week when we ended, we left with Naomi packing up her bags and setting out on a journey back to the promised land. Not with her husband and her two sons, but with her two pagan daughter-in-laws. So again, I, I want to remind you of a couple things. I want to remind you 
that the book of Ruth highlights the good and sovereign will of God. It highlights God's control. It highlights God's foreknowledge. It highlights the sovereign will of God for our lives. Even in spite of our own disobedience and in spite of our sin. What we're going to see is the faithfulness of the Lord yet again to call wayward sinners back to himself. And we get to view this story of Ruth through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus. And so with the context set for the book of Ruth this morning, let's just dive into our text. We're going to pray and we're going to jump in. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. Ask that in this moment, Lord, you show us our need for you. Lord, show us our great need for a rescuer. Show us our great need for a savior. Show us our great need um, for your involvement, your intervening in our life to call us out of darkness and into life. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by the struggle of Naomi and Ruth in the story this morning. Lord, help us to see ourselves in the midst of this. Lord, again, just reveal your grace to us. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you would you'd pray for yourself, that the Lord would remove distractions from your heart and your mind, that the Lord would call you to more faith and dependency in him, and that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed this morning. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws, that'd be Naomi, Um, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So this is the first time in the book of Ruth we have some good news. Naomi hears that there is food back in the land of promise. This was the land that God had given the nation of Israel as an inheritance, and he had promised to provide for them there, and he had promised to dwell with them there. And remember, Elimelech moves his family away from this promise. But here, in verse 6, we have the first mention of God in the story. In the Hebrew, this word visited, God visited his people. This could mean judgment, But in our case today, it means that the Lord has comforted his people. And he's done so by providing food for them, by blessing them with food. We see this word visited, uh, this Hebrew word that I'm not going to try to pronounce. We see this word often in the Old Testament when God intervenes in a crisis situation. This is the same word used when God visits infertile and barren women such as Sarah, Abraham's wife, or Hannah, the prophet Samuel's mother. The Lord is clearly at work here by visiting his people. And man, as a a New Testament people, this is just a brief aside for us, as New Testament people, 
This is the same language used in James 1.27 when it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is the nature of God. To intervene for the least of these. God is pleased to intervene on behalf of the afflicted. And therefore, as the church of God, we should act on behalf of the orphan, the widow, the needy, the refugee, and the hurting. Because that is the heart of God. How do we do this? How do we know this? How do we know this? Because we were those that were afflicted by our sin. Marita says, according to the gospel, it is all of us who are afflicted, the weak and the wounded. We're the sick. We're the sore. And Jesus has come to our aid. Christians are the people who should most identify with the orphan and the widow because we were the orphan and God adopted us. We were the widow and Jesus became our bridegroom. We were the strangers and God made us citizens of heaven. We were the poor and Jesus gave us a glorious inheritance. God has visited us with grace. God made a covenant, which is an eternal and binding promise to help the people of Israel. He made a promise to the people of Israel that he would be with them and that he would provide for them. And God is showing yet again that he is keeping up his end of the promise that he made. And since he is a promise-keeping God, we know that he will always keep his promises. We see God's grace at work here in the life of Naomi. God has agreed from centuries past that he would be their God and they would be his people. And the fact that the land is now producing means that God has not forgotten his people and God has not forgotten his promises. God has not forgotten the nation of Israel. The text tells us that Naomi in a distant land hears that the Lord has blessed his people. And this is highlighting for us the divine activity of the Lord for a work in Naomi's life, for his glory and for her good. I mean, think about it. Moab is a long ways from the nation of Israel. Naomi isn't like coming home after a long day's work and like turning on the news or listening to the radio or scrolling Facebook to receive this news, right? News had to travel to a distant land by whatever means necessary in order to reach Naomi in the distant land of Moab. Naomi's been there 10 plus years, she's experienced 10 plus years of misery in the land of compromise in Moab, and she hears that the Lord's favor has been restored to Israel in the land of Judah, right where she's from. So she takes her stuff, what little she has, she packs up her and her daughter-in-laws, or is it daughters-in-law, whatever, they head for Judah, and Naomi is returning home. But her daughters-in-law, they're leaving their land. They're leaving their families. They're leaving their customs. They're leaving their gods. And so while they're on their way back, Naomi really starts to consider a few things, specifically relating to her daughters-in-law. 
It's not daughters-in-laws. It's daughters-in-law. I don't know why I'm struggling so bad with that. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So the book of Ruth is about 75% dialogue. And here's the first conversation that we have in the book. Naomi's pleading with them, hey, guys, just go back. Go back. There's clearly this really special bond between these three women. I mean, they have experienced a lot of life together. They have experienced bitterness and hardships together. They've laughed together. They've cried at funerals together. They have been through it all together. And Naomi's like, hey, let's go. We'll tug it out. Y'all go home. Um, Naomi is returning back to Judah. And it's going to be different than when she left. She left full. She left with a husband. She left with two sons. And now she is returning as a widow. And she's not just returning as a widow, but she is returning as a widow with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. These two Moabite women... And this may not land well with you. I'm aware of, of the implications here. These two Moabite women carry with them on their faces, on their skin, the signs of this family being disobedient to God. This is further highlighting the lack of faith and the lack of trust and their lack of obedience to God. She is returning to the land of promise with two pagan women from the land of compromise. And there's some really practical things that are going through Naomi's mind here. This is three mouths to feed. How are we going to do this? Who from my family is even left? I've been gone for over a decade. Am I going to have anybody to help me along? So she says, girls... I release you from your obligations to me. Just go back to your moms. It's clear, though, like in spite of all this, in spite of all this hardship, that Naomi still has a good understanding of who God is. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. She knows, she knows at least at some level in her mind that it is the Lord that has the propensity for goodness, for kindness, when he feels like it. I'm quoting Naomi here. This is not my position. This is, this is Naomi's position. Perhaps the, she's thinking, perhaps the Lord will repay these Moabite women, these Moabitesses, for their kindness to Naomi. Perhaps, maybe, the Lord in his goodness will be good to them and give them husbands and give them families of their own. So she kisses them and tells them, go on their way, and they all just weep together at the thought of never seeing one another ever again. The word kindness here is, is the word hesed. In other places, it's translated loving kindness or steadfastness. It reminds us of God's faithfulness and loyalty. So Naomi has not abandoned her faith. Perhaps it's in her head to know the God of the Bible, but it hasn't 
translated into her heart fully yet, as we'll see. She clearly believes that at some point past, God has been kind to her. And that God can be kind again to other people. And that God is not limited by human geography. She says, go home. God will be kind to you there. Look at verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. These two women, man, they're resolute. We are going to go with you, Naomi. We're willing to sever ties with Moab. We're willing to sever ties with our family. We're willing to sever ties with our customs and with our gods out of care and concern for you. Verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Man, Naomi's just having none of this. She calls on their familial ties. She calls them daughters and affection and tells them, there is no life for you in Judah. She calls to mind what is known in the Bible as a, it's a leveret marriage. That was an interesting one to get a shout out from you on. <laughs> this means this. In biblical times, and I don't know when this particular practice ended, but it was definitely in place during the time of Jesus, a man would marry, and if this man died, in order that his line would be preserved, his, in order that his line wouldn't cease, his brother would take the man's wife as his own, and his first child, the first son born to this woman through the man's brother would be considered the deceased man's offspring and his lineage would be preserved. So Naomi has this in mind. She's like, uh, I'm too old to remarry and I'm too old to have sons. And even if I could have sons right this second, it wouldn't be kind of me to expect you two young women to wait until these sons were old enough to marry and preserve the line. Let's just let the line die. Just go back to your moms. She reminds them again. Just go back to your moms. Naomi says it's the hand of the Lord that's gone out against her. These words, according to Leon Morris, highlight one of the main themes in the story of, of Ruth. That's this. Naomi doesn't see this, but we, again, are on the resurrection side of the story. Man, things don't happen by chance. There are no coincidences. There's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. But God is sovereign. God is in control. And God brings what he will to pass by whatever means he chooses. And knowing how this story ends, and knowing that Jesus died and didn't stay dead, but was raised to life, defeating sin and death, we know that he is good and we know that he is trustworthy and whatever he does is for his glory. And if Jesus has saved you, Christian, it's for your good too. And that's really good news. These things have happened to Naomi. 
And she recognizes that that they have happened to her because of the Lord. Man, there's this word. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's these, in other places of scripture, when this, when this word is used, it's like a military or an army lining up to fight an enemy. The army has lined up in battle formation with hostile intent. Naomi is saying, girls, I am marked. God is my enemy. Things can only get worse for me, and if you go with me, you will be marked as well, and I don't want to be responsible for that. We're going to come back to this posture in a minute, Naomi's posture here. And specifically, I want to talk about our posture around our own suffering. But here's what I will say for the moment. We see Naomi, and she's bitter. She believes the Lord is punishing her. And Naomi cannot see any purpose in the work of the Lord here. Why is her situation so bad? I cannot see why the Lord would do this to me. So she reasons then that the Lord is against her. To be continued. Uh, Ruth 1.14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi has two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Her argument apparently persuades Orpah enough. She goes back She goes back to Moab. Orpah leaves and goes back to Moab and off the pages of Scripture and out of our lives forever. She was obedient to the wishes of her mother-in-law. She returns to her idols. Ruth, on the other hand, exhibits faith. And this faith is given to her by the grace of God to her. Ruth clings to Naomi This idea is like this clinging is loyalty. It's like the faithful loyalty in a marriage relationship. Ruth is forsaking everything. She's forsaking her religious heritage. She's forsaking her family. She's forsaking her land. She is forsaking whatever future she may have waiting back for her at home. She's leaving everything behind in Moab to stay with Naomi. Man, Ruth is taking a huge risk. She is a Moabitess from an enemy nation. Simply by virtue of her birth, they do not like her. But she's willing to take that risk in spite of Naomi's pleading for her not to. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's like saying, Hurry up. If you run, you're going to catch her. More pleading. And look at how Ruth responds. Maybe some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord so do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The language here, Ruth is saying, your people, my people. Your God, my God. I'm in. I am all in. 
Perhaps Ruth doesn't have a perfect theology or a perfect faith, but she knows that in the family of God, in the family of Israel, there is life there. And so she makes this declaration of faith. I am going to be a part of your nation. I am going to worship your God. We don't know when this shift in Ruth's life took place, but Piper says it's this way. Piper says it this way. In contrast to the experience of Naomi, in contrast to Naomi's bitterness, he says this. Naomi's experience of God was bitterness. But in spite of this, Ruth forsakes her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. Perhaps she had made that commitment years before when her husband told her of the great love of God for Israel and his power at the Red Sea and his glorious purpose of peace and righteousness. Somehow or another, Ruth had come to trust in Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. Man, I wish our church, wish our churches in this community, in our nation, were full of Ruth-like people. Faith in God that sees beyond your bitter setbacks. This amount of faith should astonish you. On a practical, worldly level, Ruth is making a really foolish decision. There is nothing for her in Judah. As a foreigner and as a widow, who knows if Naomi has any family left to help them? And yet, we see Ruth committing herself to serving and honoring the commitment she has made to her mother-in-law, and therefore the God of her mother-in-law. Conventional wisdom says, Ruth, go back to Moab. And faith tells her to stay. Ruth's renunciation of her people and her God was total. Ruth not only says she's going to stay, but she also pledges her loyalty by invoking an oath. Where you die, I will die. Ruth is in it for life with Naomi. She says, Naomi, if things get worse, I'm your ride or die, baby. You're stuck with me because I'm committed to you and I am committed to your God. And man, I don't think I can overstate this fact enough. Ruth isn't just going to have a tough life in Israel. She's by all means likely going to be hated in Israel because she's from a people of a different race, a different ethnic group, a people that are enemies of the nation. Her life is going to be exceedingly hard. And she is willingly going into this, knowing full well that this is going to be her lot in life. Man, verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Naomi just realizes, I'm not going to win this argument. So I'm just going to give up trying. So the two continue on their journey. And that's where we will pick up our narrative next week. So here's a couple of things uh, that I want to glean from this text. Like the question here for me is reading these Old Testament narratives is how are we going to get to Jesus in, in these stories? Um, I'll start with this. The grace of God, the cross of Christ, the calling of the Lord to call people into faith transcends race and transcends ethnicities. God is pleased to welcome people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue on the face of the earth. 
in Christ, in the family of God, there are no distinctions between rich and poor, Jew or Greek, or the 2022 interpretation, no distinctions between black, white, Hispanic, Asian, or any other nationality. God has called us into a family that transcends race, that transcends class, that transcends gender. As believers, we are all one in Christ by God's grace and by God's mercy to make us alive in Christ. Man, through the work of Christ, we're united. Not uniform, but united. Man, I just... I'm overwhelmed with gratefulness all the time as I just kind of look around the diversity in our little church. Um, I'm praying for more of it, and not just for diversity's sake. Like, it's important because this is a small yet tangible reflection of the coming kingdom. As we look at our differences and we love one another the way that Christ has loved us, I want us to celebrate these things. I want us to celebrate our diversity loudly and proudly rather than act like it's not there. Like, let's celebrate this. Let's worship. We have a God who transcends all of these distinctions. And we are all people created in God's image. Man, I love getting to worship with all of you from different ethnic groups, ethnic backgrounds, some of you from different countries. And as believers in Jesus, we serve the same God who transcends it all. And he has called us into one family to his glory. So I'm very thankful that that's true of our great God. All right, now I'm going to pivot a little bit. I feel like lately, (laughs) for the last eight or nine weeks, all of our sermons have had the theme of suffering behind them. You're like, man, what's the matter with Tanner? (laughs) Uh, Again, sovereignty. I'm doing okay. Uh, We're going to get some more hopeful texts in the next couple weeks. I promise they're coming. But I know that, like, within our group, in our midst, a lot of you are dealing with a lot of stuff, some heavy some heavier than others, but we're all dealing with something, it seems like. So perhaps all of this is just really very timely, right? When you consider the bitterness of Naomi, I want to offer you a word of caution. As you consider your own circumstances and your own hardships, consider this warning. John Piper says the lesson here is this. When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our helplessness. When our circumstances, when our hardships, when our sufferings are loud, we oftentimes fail to consider the purpose in it. Piper continues, we become so bitter, we can't see the rays of light peeping around the dark clouds. But church, consider this. In our story today, it was God who broke the famine. It was God who allowed this word to reach Naomi and Moab. And if you read ahead, God preserved Boaz, a kinsman for Naomi's line to continue to find its completion in the person of Jesus. And for our text today, it is God who impressed upon Ruth's heart to stay with Naomi. 
Ruth is going to be a conduit for God's grace to reach Naomi. But Naomi is so bitter, she blames God in bitter lament. Naomi, though, still turns to the Lord. Like our lament series last month, she is bitter, but she also knows that the Lord is the only one who can do anything about it. The Lord is the only one who can do anything about her situation. And she thinks, if the Lord is my enemy, I would rather be the Lord's enemy in his presence than be away from him. She is not just turning from a wicked country, but she is turning to and returning to the Lord. Matt pointed this out to me. He said, Naomi, even in her bitterness, shows, shows more holiness than her husband. She is so bitter, though, that she can't see God's grace to her. But again, church, we get to view this story through the lens of the resurrection. We get to view the story through the person and work of Jesus, who came to earth as God in flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life that we were called to live but couldn't. And then he died the death that we should have died but won't ever have to because Jesus died in our place. And because Jesus was buried and then raised to life, our salvation, our redemption, our rescue has been accomplished in and through Jesus for those whose faith is in him. So not only do we get to view this story through the lens of the resurrection, we get to see ourselves and our whole lives with the resurrection of Jesus in view. Things in our life, although hard, are not the final word for us. We know how this story ends. Naomi's life does not stay hard. Following the course of lament, she does eventually return to trust in the God of the covenant. The God of the promise is going to rescue her. May we be encouraged through the life of Naomi that our pain may last for a while, a long while even, but God's not idle in these moments. Listen, man, when we're not pursuing the things of Jesus, when we're distant from Jesus by our own choosing and by our own doing, when we're not filling ourselves up with the things of Jesus, man, that can very easily lead to a misunderstanding of our circumstances. We'll tend to view suffering through the lens of punishment, like Naomi saying, God is my enemy. Man, rather when we're resting in, delighting in, finding fulfillment in Jesus, we know that he's good. We know that he's worthy to be trusted. So may we just continue to lean into this grace of lament. May we continue to go to God in our suffering. And may that grace lead us to faith in the God who is working on our behalf. And lastly, the last thing I want to focus on as we close is what we're going to learn from, from Ruth's conversion. Her conversion, and actually all of Christian conversion, is this. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, um, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
Man, true biblical, authentic Christianity involves turning your back on the idols of this world in order that you may receive Christ. Man, I want this story of Ruth's conversion to lead us to mission. God is still pleased to call people to himself. Ruth and then her future mother-in-law, Boaz, Mama Rahab, the, the prostitute from Jericho, they were outsiders. They were pagans. And yet, God saved them in order to preserve the covenant he made to his people. Jesus is in this lineage. One conversion often leads to multiple conversions. Church, your witness for Christ matters. And it matters for the kingdom. Would you pray that God would use you in a Ruth sort of way? That God would lead you to be bold with your faith? That God would impress upon your heart the need for him and the need for witness to him and for him? Look, Ruth's story is our story in a lot of ways. In our sin, in our unbelief, in our disobedience, we, like Ruth, we're outsiders, but God has adopted us and brought us into a family. We were once far off, but through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God has brought us near into fellowship, into relationship with him. And this faith is personal, yes, but don't overlook the communal aspects of it. Last week, we talked about how a lot of us try to function like God and me, and that's all I need. God in my Bible, I'm good, I'm set. But that isn't the faith that we see in the Bible. This faith is communal. Ruth says, because your God is my God, your people are now my people. Man, in our individualistic cultures, we fail to grasp the significance of this. That we have been saved into and invited into a family and a lot of us function as if we really don't care about the church or the family of God. Marita highlights it this way. God has always promised that he would have a people for himself. He displays his glory to his people in providence and in redemption. And he displays his glory through his people in their words and deeds. Man, our faith is personal. But our faith is not individualistic. We are saved into a community. The church is not a building. The church is not an event you attend. Church is a people. If you are a Christian, you are the church. And if we're honest, man, a lot of you function opposite of that calling that God has placed on your life. We're called into a family. Therefore, we are called to be together, to serve together to worship together, to live on mission together. Our church attendance and the reason we ask covenant members to like show up and attend faithfully is not so we can have rumps in the seat at a, at a yellow hotel, but because we are reflecting heaven. It's a day in which people from every tribe, nation, and tongue on the face of the earth will gather together in the worship of Jesus. And some of you function like this isn't important. But I just implore you to reconsider your position here. Man, you're called into a family. 
If you are a Christian, you are the church and you've been invited into a family. Consider your response to this. Is your functionality in the church reflective and consistent with what you say you believe about Jesus? For example, I'm almost done, I promise. For example, when you think about church, whether intrinsically or like you're going to verbalize some thoughts you have about church, are you thinking, what is in it for me? What can I get out of this? How is this serving my ideals of what I think a church should be like? Can I be a part of a community group with only people that I like and only people that I have everything in common with and only people who get me and fully understand me and who are in my same life stage and who are going to pursue me, but I don't really want to pursue anybody, but I would like people to check in on me and it'd be real cool if the pastor would hire a guy who's super good at evangelism because they should do all the evangelism and mission stuff locally because that's their job. And I'll come in here and get my ears tickled, and then I'll leave. And I hope that I find a church that would teach my kids about Jesus so I don't have to do anything other than bring them up there every once in a while. And I'll drop a 20 in the offering box every once in a while so I can check off that box. And I'll serve when it's convenient for me. And I'll show up when it's convenient for me. Or, are you looking at what the Bible says about your faith family? That you are called into a faith family by faith for God to serve God and serve the bride and serve others. Man, when you function indifferently or apathetically towards the bride of Christ, the church, you are functionally communicating that you are indifferent towards the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. You are functioning that you are indifferent towards the forgiveness that you say you have received. Man, when you refuse to even be held accountable for your shortcomings, and man, we all need to be held accountable for our shortcomings because we all have them, You are communicating that you have a lower view of your sin than the cross would suggest that you need to have. Man, you cannot, you cannot neglect the gathering together with other believers and be fulfilled as a Christian. You can say whatever you want to say in response to that, but like biblically, in the New Testament, this just isn't possible. Man, listen, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross, enduring your sin and your shame and your guilt and your punishment, not for you to continue to live for yourself, but for you to live for him. He went to the cross to forgive you of your sin and to restore you and to use you for mission for his glory, not for you to just show up periodically and check some Christian boxes and go on your way and call yourself a Christian and live with zero regard for the cross. Consider the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and consider the response you have to the work of Christ in your own life. 
Then consider where you'd be had God not stepped in on your behalf. It is God who saves you. You cannot do it on your own. Church, I beg you to stop neglecting the things of God in your life. Consider the cross and consider what you say you believe. Jesus has placed the same calling on your life that he has placed on Ruth. Lay down your idols. In 2022, a lot of our idols are ourselves. We chase the comforts of this world, the things, the stuff, the nice cars, the nice houses, the vacations, the vacation properties, financial security, sex and relationships, and we are trying to fulfill ourselves outside of the will of God. And we may get to the end of our lives and may be super comfortable and secure and super comfortable and secure in a worldly sense and stand before the Lord with our fully funded 401ks and our nice car and our nice house and have no tangible relationship with God. And that means we're spiritually bankrupt. And if that's the case, there is no hope for life, no hope for an eternity, and no salvation Look, man, these things that we, we chase, the things I listed, they're not bad in and of themselves. But they don't save you. They aren't meant to fulfill you the way that God does. They aren't meant to be your primary pursuit. They can be and should be gifts for us to enjoy God with, but our pride and our flesh corrupts them all. And listen, all good things make really terrible gods. I just beg you to consider this morning where you stand with Jesus. And if you claim to be a Christian, is your life reflective of this? Are you committed to Jesus? Are you following him by faith? Are you denying yourself? Are you dying to yourself daily? Are you setting aside what you want to choose what honors God? Are you invested in a local body of believers? Like, are you invested deeply Are you practically living out the calling of God to your life? Or are you just really good at saying the things you're supposed to say? Has the cross moved you to love and faith in Jesus? If not, man, you need to repent. You need to turn from your idols and follow Christ. Let's just all be real honest with ourselves in these next few moments. Really consider your life. Is it reflective of the calling of Christ to you? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are available to you, but you cannot remain unchanged by the gospel and say you're a Christian. Grace to you and forgiveness from Jesus to you. The question is just will you receive it? Will you accept it? Will you follow him by faith this morning? Let's pray.